Welcome to the Constructor Cast, your place for all the news, views, and interviews relevant to your construction business. I am your host, Leah Pilconis. The current news cycle reveals all too clearly that crisis situations are on the rise. Many construction firms are taking steps to develop, refine, and test their crisis and emergency response plans and preparedness strategies. Our guests today are going to share ideas on crisis response best practices. You'll hear how a national construction firm redefined and developed a clear internal communication strategy that works for today's times. And we will also explore the importance of identifying and managing the human impact on the people indirectly impacted by the crisis. I have two awesome speakers with me here today. Trisha Kegerer, who is Executive Director for Construction out of Dallas for Gallagher, and also Tyler Henson, who is the Senior Risk Management Director for J.E. Dunn Construction. We're gonna start off first with Tyler. Ty, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. I wanna invite you to say a few more words about yourself and what you do. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me on, Leah, and uh, it's a pleasure to do this with you. Uh, I do work at J.E. Dunn here at our headquarters in Kansas City. I started with the company 15 years ago and uh, evolved into working in the risk management department. I've been in that group for over 10 years now, and one of my colleagues and I discussed several years ago as we were actually contemplating the lack of crisis and emergency response here at the company or areas that needed to be improved. And uh, certainly at our company, and I'm sure at others, when you identify something that needs some help or needs some work, uh, then you've just earned an assignment. And uh, so I've been working on it now for uh, over eight years, and I'm thrilled to share a little bit about our journey with you today. Thanks, Ty. It's difficult enough, I know, for a construction company to plan for things that are happening let alone things that might happen. Can you share with our listeners a bit about your journey to develop your company's present-day crisis management plan? Absolutely. Um, And that's a good way to state it. Um, You know, as with so many things that happen to all of us, uh, the journey on this developing a crisis management plan at J.A. Dunn was really based on experiences, and by that I mean things that actually have happened. Uh, But a lot of it was also informed by this general sense that we need to have not just a basic plan, but a robust plan, and really that that's a duty as an employer to our employees, first and foremost. I also, I'd be remiss if I didn't note that our executives and our board of directors were interested in knowing that we were prepared. It's certainly a topic that comes up in their discussions, and they want to be confident that the company is prepared for these situations. And what they wanted to see was a broad framework uh, for how we would respond, but in certain cases, detailed processes for what to do in a crisis. And really the particular thing and event that caused us to start to work on this and crystallize the need was actually the construction of our own new headquarters here in Kansas City. Well, with the new five-story building, everyone was brought back together, which meant Several hundred employees were now in the same building working together. It's a level of exposure and risk that we hadn't dealt with before in our separate smaller offices, so it forced us to address that issue and start thinking about the crisis response needs for just this building. So while that was one singular event where we looked at how to respond to the typical crises, whether they be a 
weather-related event or some type of an active shooter or a bomb threat or other issue, it really then launched the company into a whole-scale analysis of what we were doing, both at the offices and in the field. So after we developed the plan here at this office, we then took our show on the road, essentially, built it up in all of our other offices, and then kind of reformatted it and uh, configured it to work at job sites. Certainly those present an entirely different situation for folks because job sites change, uh, and so the emergency response there uh, has to change and adapt to the job site. So it really started out in about 2009, and within about two to three years, we'd really uh, made a wholesale change to the way the entire company, both site and office, addresses crisis. So can you tell me, what are some of the key components or elements of your crisis strategy that make it successful? Do you have any lessons learned, or or could you say, you know, what are some do's or don'ts? Absolutely. You know, at the end of the day, your crisis management plan is, is really what you want to make of it. And I will tell you this, when we started out, our approach was to survey the best practices, uh, survey what resources were available, and take the best of what we could find and assemble those into a plan that worked for J. Dunn. And to tell you the truth, at the end of the day, what we ended up with was about a two-inch thick binder. Well, what happened to that binder? You can only imagine. It started to gather dust. Something that thick and something that detailed turned out to not be a very workable tool, but that's what we were seeing out there. And so what we learned over time is that for something to be a successful crisis and emergency plan, it has to be consumable, first of all, and then it has to be simple. Uh, our company generally started a lean journey several years ago, and we've really taken those concepts and applied them in the crisis and emergency response realm as well. We know that there's a lot of smart people that work for us, and for the most part, they're going to have an intuitive sense to what to do in a crisis. But we do want to prepare them with some basic uh, and simple resources. So uh, the recent lesson learned was simplicity matters, and we've converted all of our older resources into much simpler and more cogent uh, training materials that we present to people when there's not a crisis. Uh, in addition to that, we've created very simple and instructive pocket cards, which a lot of companies do, that identify the core duties that we all expect to occur when there is a crisis and serve really not as instructions, but as reminders and refreshers of what folks have been trained on. I would say that what you might hear in my comments, and the core of that is really kind of one ultimate important issue, and that's good communication. Now, what we found out from some of the events that have affected our company is that uh, you really have to ensure that communication is structured and smooth, and you don't have multiple people trying to call folks on the ground uh, to get feedback and reports. We've really got to have uh, a more structured way to do that. Um, I would say there's another, another thing that we've learned uh, over time, uh, and this is a, a definite do. Um, and this really applies for us, and it has applied, unfortunately, a few times in the aftermath of a fatality. You've got to think about the psychological issues, how the projects and the teams will be affected after the event. I think a lot of uh, companies certainly think about engaging a crisis counselor in the event of a, of a bad event, and they have those resources at the ready. Um, if you haven't had one, I, I bet many folks will sit back and think, well, you know, I can envision uh, at some point we have an event and then we bring in a crisis counselor or some uh, some uh, support, perhaps a priest, 
and we'll set them up in a job trailer, and they'll just be sitting there alone for a couple of days, and they'll have no visitors. I guess the piece of advice I'd give to any of our listeners about this, uh, if you have an event, bring two counselors or bring two priests. Make sure one's bilingual. I mean, engage them in the process. Um, you'll find out that after one of these events, especially if they're severe, people really are looking for an outlet uh, to talk about what happened, to process it, uh, to figure out how they're going to return to work and re-engage uh, in a way that allows them to focus on their work but also be able to process uh, uh, whatever happened and put it in its place in their mind so that they can keep going. It's really great advice, and you offer great insight. I appreciate all that, that you've shared. Crises come in many forms, obviously, and, and they can be a, a small-scale job site snafu or a large-scale catastrophic event or you know, even a job site fatality. Do you follow a similar plan so that the actions taken are logical and organized and efficient? Well, we do now. <laughs> we didn't always in the past. So uh, that really has been uh, the, the outcome of the uh, journey here in the past few years. You know, historically, um, local executives in our company might really take charge of the situation and handle it. Uh, and and that, while that was good and admirable, uh, what it often meant is that our approach nationally was somewhat inconsistent. Uh, and, and that really didn't work to our benefit, whether it was the small events you note or the large-scale events. Um, I think then the next thing that, that we learned is that our executives here at the home office were obviously very interested in understanding what happened. They want to help, and then they want to be in touch with the people at the scene, as I would mentioned earlier. You know, what really happens is that that desire to help can quickly turn into a hindrance. So, for example, if a project executive at a project site is trying to respond to the media or perhaps talk to a family member of a victim who's shown up at the job site, um, you can't really have them uh, focus on other things. In other words, we don't need their cell phone ringing with calls from the C-suite. Back here at the home office, we really want their full attention directed to the situation there on the ground. And so um, when I mentioned the communication piece, um, there's a phrase we use around J.D. Dunn with respect to a lot of things, and it applies here as well, and that's really called having defined swim lanes, uh, defined duties. And so as we've evolved to this more precise method, we've really defined who's working uh, on what issues. And really, when you're talking about the location of the crisis and for job sites, that's going to be the superintendent. That's going to be the project teams. They're going to work with EMS. They're going to talk to the witnesses. They're going to work with OSHA or the authorities who come to the site. At the next level up, more project executives in the region will start to take the mantle of informing back up the chain to the higher levels uh, of executive leaders. And that will make its way all the way up to regional presidents and to our CEO and his emergency action team. So we've tried to make sure that people weren't jumping from lane to lane as they try to assist and learn more about the situation. And we've done it by charting it out in training tools. So when I mentioned the training, we've really got to get those teams bought in to this communication structure and understanding their swim lanes so that when the event happens, we all snap into place and follow those uh, trainings that we've done and adhere to our roles. So I'm glad you mentioned the training tools because that is the next thing that I wanted to ask you about. I know that you've developed some for your company to make sure that your plan is implemented properly in the event of a crisis situation, and you're using them to make sure that everybody knows their role and can execute the plan uh, proficiently. 
Um, you presented this year at AGC's uh, Surety Bonding and Construction Risk Management Conference. Um, can you just share with us some of the tools that, that you shared uh, with the folks that came to that conference? And, and before you do that, I want to let everyone know that we are going to provide a link in the podcast notes so that uh, folks can access those tools. Really, we boiled it down into three particular items, three to four particular items. And for many years, we did have a, a, a pocket card that had a crisis response protocol on it. Uh, but I'll summarize it in this form. It, it said, uh, you know, uh, be sure to engage the media, but call all of these executives if there's a crisis. And it listed names and phone numbers. And what we found over time was that, uh, you know, that some of those people retired and they were no longer here, but the old cards were floating around. Phone numbers changed, so those weren't up to date. And it really didn't give any instruction on what to do in the crisis. So we still use a pocket card, but what we've done is taken it and identified those roles. It's really a card that on one side breaks down the duties of the superintendent and any other project personnel at the site and what they must do uh, immediately in the aftermath of the crisis. It then gives instruction to the project executive overseeing the job on where they'll communicate. And then it goes on to talking to our construction operations leaders about their duty to go do things like appoint an incident spokesperson, uh, drafting up the message on how to re- uh, respond to the media, drafting up messages that we'd like to get out in advance to our clients because many people will hear through Google alerts and such that there's been an event. So behind the simple pocket card, there certainly are some longer resources, but it's one of those items that we do want to use in training and we want to pull it out after the immediate impact of the crisis has been addressed. We have a pocket card both for our project sites. We have a different and distinct pocket card for our offices because the two involve different personnel responding. And then the last thing we have is really a simple organizational chart that is uh, reflective of the concept of the swim lanes that I mentioned earlier, and it really divides into three areas where our safety department comes in. The first is looking at what the primary leader at the incident location is doing. And in many cases, that might be a safety person or maybe a superintendent. Next, it it addresses what the regional safety director's duties are and to whom they will communicate. And last, it addresses what the national safety director will do. I think the last thing, though, I'd note is that there's a tool, two tools, really, that are, are not very tangible, but perhaps the most important ones, and that's doing the trainings and doing it on an annual basis. So it's very important for us that we identify who the crisis leaders are and that we get out and remind them on an annual basis of the JEDUN plan, how we expect them to respond so that it's fresh for them. Thank you, Ty. And we really appreciate all the tips and information and tools that you shared with us today and and that you and JEDUN are willing to share with the construction community. So we're going to transition now and spend a little bit of time talking with Tricia about post-crisis intervention programs. Welcome, Tricia. Thank you so much for being here with us today. So you've got over 20 years of construction risk management and safety experience working with contractors all across the United States. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background? Absolutely. Thank you for having me this morning. Uh, I have worked in construction in some form or fashion for more than 20 years. Uh, I started with a large general contractor in Texas um, and grew their safety and risk management department, Um, served as their vice president of risk management and safety uh, for about 11 years. And then most recently, I was working for a large uh, 
construction captive and where I did risk management and safety consulting across the U.S. for various size companies. Uh, right now I'm working for Gallagher and um, I'm an executive director of construction um, for the Dallas unit. So how did you become an advocate for crisis management in the construction industry? Well, unfortunately, it it was out of necessity, which is something that I really didn't um, expect. Uh, as a safety professional, I was working for a large general contractor in Texas, and I was implementing, I was lucky enough to have management commitment, and the company was growing, and they were very excited about um doing everything we possibly could on safety. So we spent, me and my team spent a lot of time on implementing all kinds of the, the gold standard for safety, if you will, um, training and education, um, fall protection, the focus for all of those things. And we, we actually were receiving recognition for our safety process across the board. Um, we were the first place for construction safety excellence with the AGC. Um, and we really thought we had it all figured out. And then one day, something terrible happened, and we had a fatality on one of our job sites. Uh, that was, and unfortunately, it was the first of three events that happened within a six-month period. And the reality was that all the time that we had spent on training and education and the leadership and everything, the one thing that we had not done, which I, I've not learned over the years that we were not alone, this happens a lot with construction companies, we didn't really have a crisis management plan. Um, so after, um, in April of 2008, one of our best workers uh, was out working on a project moving dirt um, on an articulated dump truck. Um, and there was a young man, 23 years old, and he came out of a trench and was going to take a break and he walked in a different direction than the rest of his team. And our operator was backing up and he, ran, he walked right into the line of the equipment and he ran him over. And he didn't even know he ran him over. And so everybody took it really hard. So there's, when that's going on on a construction site, um, you know, we're dealing with OSHA, we're dealing with legal, we're dealing with uh, the media, etc. Um, and so my team got to work on all of those things. The one thing we missed was Mr. Montes, who was operating the equipment. Three months later, he went home, had dinner with his family, and uh, at three in the morning woke up and went into the living room and shot himself. His 14-year-old son was sleeping in the room next to where he did that, and his wife was down the hall. And I took that as, as a sign that not only is it about crisis management with the risk management side of things and the insurance side of things, but we've got to see the human side of things. And we missed it. Um, so we were so busy dealing with the the family and the aftermath and the insurance and the safety and all of the compliance, we completely missed it. And little did I know at that point that um, construction has one of the highest rates for suicide of all industries in the United States. BLS did a study a few years ago that determined that construction has a really high rate. Um, 
Cal Byer, out of the blue, he's a good friend of mine, asked me to serve on a committee, um, the Construction Alliance for Suicide Prevention. And I felt that this was some way I could serve um, so that other people don't have to go through what we went through and that we can hopefully make a difference. Because the reality is, for those companies that have a good plan, oftentimes we're not thinking about what it's like for people who are in these situations, maybe the, the second or third party removed, and how can they go on and what can we do to serve? Yeah, it's, that's such a tragic story. I appreciate you sharing that with us. And it sounds like you've, you've, you have a lot of lessons learned from that story. And are you able to kind of convey to, to the listeners what, what now, in hindsight, you feel are kind of some of the things that, that, that construction firms, um, when it comes to crisis management preparation or their program, are, are some common missteps? Well, what I notice a lot is um, when I hear, uh, for those companies that have very robust programs or ones that are just starting out, first of all, uh, a lot of times it's something that put, is put on the back burner like we did. Crisis management is something like you're planning for the what if. What if something happens? And sometimes you can't get the, um, the attention and the time that it needs, uh, whether it be budget, et cetera, because what if it doesn't happen? So you're putting resources of time and effort and money on something that may never occur. So that's always difficult. And of course, in construction is extremely busy. We're always moving forward and we're focused on the building and making sure that we do all of that. Um, so that's one challenge is we're planning for the what if and the might happen. And that's one challenge. The second challenge is I see typically, if there's a plan at all, it's always focused on weather events or employee accidents. And like Tyler was saying, we can expand that to uh, be an all hazards plan so that you're using those same resources and identifying those same communication strategies and using them for any type of incident. The reality of today is we have to deal with cyber we have to deal with potentially uh, active shooters on our projects, things that you wouldn't even think about unless you take the time to stop and think about them. And then the, the, the final thing I would say is even those that have really planned, a lot of times when we get to the part of how are we going to deal with the people side of things, the soft skills side of things after the crisis, um, when asked that question, it's, well, we have an employee assistance plan and we're going to give them a card. Um, and the reality is that that puts a lot of burden on a card's shoulders. Because let's think, think about the people that are working in construction. Uh, they're um, typically driven to construction because they want to build things, they want to use equipment. They're, they, they're, they, they're not there because they want to get in touch with their feelings and talk about um, their problems, right? So we're assuming that when we hand someone a card, one, they're going to remember that they have it, Two, that they're going to use it. It's they're going. To, we're expecting someone who needs to talk to someone to reach out. And what we need to do is be have our part of our crisis response team is that it's much longer than the day after the event. It may go on for a year, um, and then those people uh, that are in the field who know the people who have a relationship can identify those outliers of people who who need help. Uh, so people who have gone through, let's say, a death claim, a death in situation on our project, um, they're in situations that they've never been in before. They're standing potentially next to a dead body 
um, they're going, a project manager has to go in perhaps, and he's identified as the person that knows the family, so he's going to go tell a loved one, a mother, a daughter, um, a wife that they've lost their spouse. These are situations that they never expected to be in. Firefighters and uh, people that sign up to be external first responders, those ones in the community, they're trained for this. Construction people are being put in these situations and they're not trained for it. So of course it can result in some emotional stress that is really under the radar and I don't ever hear talked about very much. So you refer to these people more as the internal first responders. Yes, These absolutely. people that just never really believe that they're going to find themselves in this type of situation. And um, there are a lot of unique challenges that, that they're facing. Absolutely. And, and how, mm-hmm. how do you recommend um, that companies go about making sure that, that they get the help that they need? Well, so first of all, I would say that um, it's it's – speaking about it like this podcast I'm recognizing that there needs to be a a plan for how are we going to help our people that of course we're going to rely on them when there's there's a catastrophic event on of any kind on our projects and people are going to be asked to do things like a project manager Um, I remember specifically one of the project managers came to me after this event and he said I didn't sign up for this I I I want to be in construction. I don't want to be going and talking to someone's spouse about, uh, you know, a death. Um, And so that got me thinking about what do we need to do? Because really, what did we miss? Well, we missed a lot. So um, there are human resources available if you're tapping into your company and all the resources it has. insurance, uh, uh, your uh, per- perhaps your workers' compensation or your broker may have some resources for you as well. But if you don't think about it to identify them ahead of time, it's not going to happen. Tyler mentioned um, having a pastor or a priest um, on site. One of the things that we did after these, these tragic events was um, I was in Texas. It is a predominantly Hispanic community of construction workers that were working in that area. And so we actually hired a gentleman, um, a pastor, to work for our company, um, not just the day after the crisis, not just, he was actually on staff and his whole job was just to go out and connect with the Hispanic community and go on site and ask those tough questions. So if you ask a construction person, or if you ask really anybody, how are you doing? The answer is typically fine. Well, we need to dig deeper than that because fine is not enough. Um, we have to be looking for signs of, of post-traumatic stress after these situations. Um, someone who was typically always with the crew eating lunch and now they're off by themselves. Um, that's one sign. Someone who is suddenly was always very punctual and now is tardy all the time someone who is not performing at the level that they used to perform. So in, in our situation, we hired a, a pastor, and he made relationships with that group. His whole job was to just go out and visit job sites, walk around and ask how people were doing, have conversations, and get to know them. Thank you, Tricia. Sure. Well, your your dedication and commitment to this and, and the topic is really admirable and very commendable. 
you're going to be speaking on this topic uh, in a day at AGC's uh, very first safety, health, and environmental conference uh, here in, in Seattle, which is where we are right now recording this. I know that as part of that presentation, you have a slide where you're going to list a lot of resources um, that, that you found to be particularly helpful and, and useful to construction firms. We're going to make that presentation or a link to it available in the notes for this podcast. Um, so thank you very much for being here with us today. And thank you all for listening. This has been the AGC Constructor Cast. You can stream all of the past episodes online at www.agc.org slash constructorcast. And please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Google Play Music.